You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, through 12, if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12, through 12. here's what... Here's what Peter says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Uh, we'd like to pray before we dive in. So I just ask if you would pray for me, and I'll pray for us. Um, bow your head with me. Father, when we come before you and we stand in front of your word, um, and we want to hear from you, so Lord, I, I pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and remove any barriers and any hindrances that would stop us from hearing from you. Lord, I pray uh, for our hearts this morning, Lord, that you would come and do a work of transformation in our hearts, that you would give comfort where comfort is needed, that you would give rebuke and correction where that is needed, that you would give strength where that is needed. Lord, that you would remind us how we are accepted only in the work of Jesus at the cross and that you would help us to find our place there once again. We know that each of us is like sheep who wanders, so it's so easy to wander from the foot of your cross. And so, Lord, bring us back there. Remind us of the work of your son Jesus on our behalf. I trust you to do that work. I pray now, Father, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I have entitled uh, this message, The War Against Your Soul. I don't usually begin there by giving you the title of the message, but I will will say that for some reason there was, in, in preparing this message this week, there just was something that was quite off about it. And there might still be something quite off about it, and we'll find out. So it might just be me. I might be the thing that's off. Um, but I thought I would start there in letting you know that the, the title of the message is The War Against Your Soul. And the reason that I chose that title, which I hope kind of becomes the theme, because I, I believe it's, 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 it's a major theme, at least in these two verses that we've just read. He, Peter uses a similar phrase in verse 11 of our text. You might look at it uh, real fast. He, he, you know, he starts out, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so I, I landed on that phrase as, as a good theme in this text. Now the thing is, there's a number of themes um, in this text, but that seems to kind of be the central 
thrust of the text. Now, it's no secret to most of you, if you know me well, that I'm definitely a fighter. Um, I think if you know me well, you know that, right? You know um, that, that I'm a person who does not retreat. I don't, I don't give up. Um, I don't toss up the white flag. I don't run. I don't hide. Like, that's just kind of part of my wiring. And the reality, as I was thinking about this, is that, and, and I'm thinking about this text, thinking about that, kind of that major theme that's here of, of the, the war that is constantly being waged against our souls. I was thinking about the ways that I have a tendency to respond or react in the moment when I'm under pressure, right? If you think about how you react when you feel like you're being attacked, right? How, how do you respond? How, how do you react? Uh, when, when, when I'm under pressure, uh, when I feel like I'm under attack, when there's a war or an all-out assault being waged against me, I, I often am more like the person who can be really slow to listen, catch my drift, uh, a re- really, really quick to speak, be really sharp with my tongue, um, really, uh, really quick to anger, right? You might notice those three things are the exact opposite of what um, James tells us in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, because in James 1, 19 through 20, he says, hey, you ought to be quick to listen, right? You, uh, you ought to be slow to speak. You ought to be slow to anger. But I find myself on the opposite end of that when I feel under attack, when it feels like my soul um, has a war that's being waged against it. And oftentimes, if I'm, if I'm going to dig a little bit deeper than just feeling under attack and try to express what the desires are under the surface, some of the, the root issue, right? Um, I mean, we are people who love to be like monkeys jumping around the branches, taking care of fruit, right? Fruit management, um, rather than good um, soil conservationists and getting down to the root because that's hard, hard work. You get, you get dirt on your fingertips, you bloody your knuckles, and so on, so it's just hard work. Um, if, I, if I'm going to do a little bit of root work, at least for me this morning, hoping that it kind of catches some of you guys, what's happening under the surface when I feel attacked or when I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in a war or my soul is being you know, besieged, um, happens oftentimes when I feel unwanted or when I feel cast aside, right, on the outside or, uh, or if I feel helpless. Those are some of the desires and the feelings under the surface that are an indicator of the, the, the war that gets waged against my soul. Let me just ask you, what, what do you do? What, what do you naturally do when you feel unwanted, when you feel left out, when you feel cast aside, when, you, when you're struggling with those things, when you feel helpless or powerless? Like there's no way that I can change what's happening right now. What's your go-to? What's your go-to response? Let me think about that for a minute. See, I think Peter, um, I, think, I think Peter, as he's writing this, I think he knows that his audience is struggling in some of these ways. Okay? Just, just based on some of the words that he's using as he addresses them. 
I, I think he knows that they are definitely struggling with some of those feelings, some of those desires of, I want to be wanted. I don't want to be cast aside and on the outside. I don't want to feel helpless or powerless. I actually want to feel powerful. I want to be on the inside. I want to be desirable to somebody. Right? I think he knows that these are some of the things that his audience is struggling with. He knows that they are in the midst of a war that's being waged against their very souls. That's why I think he uses that phrase. I think he knows, too, that that what's going to happen naturally with his listeners, with his audience, is I think he knows um, that as as they struggle through the hurt of being unwanted, as, as, as the world around them treats them like outcasts, um, I think he knows that, that as they face the pain or, or the fear of suffering for their faith even, I think as Peter stands back and thinks about all these things for the audience, the churches that he's writing to, I think he knows that they're going to they're gonna get into a position where they're going to kind of long for the good old days, right? Like I, and that's something that I think is, a, is an easy jump, an easy connection for us. Like how many of us in this room are like, man, I just wish things would go back to normal before 2020 happened, right? Like, I think that phrase has probably come out of all of our mouths in this room. And I, I, sometimes I think I'm probably like the only one in the room who's like, actually, I don't want it to go back to normal. I really don't. Because I, I think the American church before this all happened was jacked anyways. And I think God was using 2020 to do something in us. Now, whether you agree with that or not, or whether you pay attention to that or not, it's totally up to you, Right? So I'm not really in that boat where I want things to go back to normal. I'm kind of a guy who's like, I love, I love the challenge of what I think God is trying to do as he tries to sanctify his church, right? And change us and transform us. And I think Peter's kind of maybe in some of that same boat where he's looking at his people and he's kind of like, hey, you're not going to go back to the promised land today. We're not going to go back to that place where we're like center of society. Right? That's why I think he keeps talking to them with these terms of sojourners, alienated, outcasts, so on and so forth. And what happens is when you begin to face that kind of pain, something happens deep down inside of you, and you begin to respond in certain very human ways. But the thing about religious people, and you look at Israel all throughout the Old Testament, the thing about religious people is we get religious language that, that uh, kind of clothes our idolatry. And it's really, really hard to get after. I mean, why do you think you've got a good portion of the Old Testament written by prophets, right? These are books that most of us don't like to read. But here's the reality. If you read the prophets and you read them really, really well, you know what the issues, most major issues were there? Besides idolatry and, and worship of other, of other gods, um, it was the fact that the poor and other ethnicities were being abused. And the church was turning a deaf eye to it, a deaf tone, Right? And there were, there were actually leaders in the church in Israel during that time who were like, no, everything's going to be fine. Like, God's not going to do anything to us. And then there were prophets who were like, no, you need to listen. Like, God's got an issue with this. And so I, I, I'm tying together all these different themes throughout the Bible as I get to this. And I think what Peter is basically telling his people is, hey, I don't want to see you living in this place where you just long for things to go back to normal because you don't feel like you're in the center of society anymore. Right? I think, I think that what he, as, as he thinks about the places that his listeners are in, he's thinking about how they're going to be tempted to fight for acceptance, right? 
to fight for some kind of acceptance where the, the culture around you would be like, oh, we really want you. We love you. We think that you are right. They're going to they're gonna want to try to fight for that, right? They don't wanna, nobody wants to be on the outside. Nobody wants to be on the inside. I think, that, I think he knows that they might be, be tempted to uh, regain some level of comfort even too. Uh, Joe brought up a passage about comfort earlier. And, and the problem with, with when we talk about comfort from a biblical perspective um, and, and, and you look at the wide panorama of Scripture from beginning to end, the Christian life was meant to be uncomfortable in this world. Why? Because our comfort is not based on our circumstances. Our comfort is not based on the lifestyle we have. Our comfort comes from a deep understanding of our identity in Christ, right? Like, we find comfort in that in the midst of being uncomfortable. It, it's, a, it's a crazy upside-down, inside-out lifestyle. So I, I think about all these things. Obviously, I'm kind of all over the place, right? I, I'm, I'm going to bat this around a little bit. Hopefully, you can kind of track with me as we come around and then come back to this central theme of the war against our souls. I, I do think, honestly, I really do believe as I study the, the, like the nation of Israel, as I study the Bible, as I study the different ups and downs, and then think about this very time when Peter's writing to Israel, I think the temptation for Israel would be to try, try to fight to regain some center of influential power in society. And the interesting thing is, is you don't see Peter at all giving that advice, right? You don't see him at all saying, this is the war we need to go fight in our culture. It's not what he says. And that's a fascinating thing to me because the American church today continues to take the Bible and turn it into a weapon. And I, don't, I really do not believe that that was what Jesus intended whatsoever. In fact, I think there were Pharisees and there were Sadducees and there were Zealots right? And uh, there were Essenes. Those are the four major key players in, 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 the, in the Christian um, world as Jesus comes on the scene. Those are your four major denominations. Pharisees love their Bibles. Sadducees love to ignore half the Bible. That's a good way of describing it. Zealots love to use their Bibles as weapons for cultural warfare. They're going to fight all the bad stuff in the culture and they're going to take over the, the, the political world, and they're going to get their people in those seats of power. That's a zealot. Do the study. Um, and Essene, an Essene so, so the zealots are fight. Fight this thing. And the Essenes are very much like John the Baptist. They're guys who are like, no, nah, I'm out, dude. I'm going to go hang out in the woods, eat locusts, and kind of be that guy. Um, there's something very good about each of these four groups. I'm kind of approaching it in a negative way this morning as a way to illustrate where Israel was at. Because that's, that's who Peter's writing to, right? Like, let's be honest this morning and remember that Peter's not writing to you and me as Americans. He didn't even have Americans in his mind, right? Now, God, God did, sure. But it was written primarily to churches that were part of the nation of Israel, a Gentile, Gentile churches especially, it was written to them, but it was written for us. So make that distinction between the two and the four. The jump that you have to make across the river and build a bridge with to have principles that actually apply have to be faithful to what the author actually intended to say, right? So if we think about that, we just kind of get ourselves in the mindset of, 
of who and what and where and when, right, and what's going on, I think it's better to start there and then, and then try to dissect some of the negative ways in which we as Americans might try to approach this and read it wrong. So that's kind of what I've done in our opening here, is to try to set the tone for that so that we might read it through the right lens as we hear this. So these are the things I think Peter knows. At the end of the day, I think Peter knows that there is a war that's being waged against the souls of his listeners. And I think like a very good pastor, what Peter does here is he reminds his audience and then he reminds us through this, that as a family of loved and alienated outcasts, they are to choose their battles carefully and they're to maintain honorable lifestyles so that their enemies have a reason to glorify God. That's the big idea. Let me say it one more time. As a family of loved, alienated outcasts, what Peter wants them to do is he wants them to choose their battles carefully, wants them to maintain honorable lifestyles. Why? So that their enemies have a reason to glorify God. Like, let's face it. All the culture wars we can make gives nobody a reason to glorify God. Just gives people a reason to hate Christians more. And this is why Peter begins. Begins by calling, calling his listeners a family of loved, alienated outcasts. Think about that. Think about applying that to us as a church family, right? Like, write this down and look at the words for yourself. <coughs> we are a family of loved, alienated outcasts. Those are some crazy descriptors. Like, I don't think I would ever describe myself, I mean, maybe loved, I'm loved. But to describe myself as an alienated outcast? Man, th think about that, right? When, when Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, what's he doing? He's giving them identifiers. And at the same time, he's actually identifying with his listeners in their hurt, in their pain, in their fear. But at the same time, he's also identifying with them in their identity in Christ. He's doing both here. What Peter doesn't do is he doesn't gloss things over in any way. A lot of us like to gloss things over. Like, it's not going to be that bad. Right? But he's also not giving them permission to go sulk in their shame. He's also not giving them permission to go create a war in the culture. He's doing neither of those things. What he's doing is he's giving them the permission to, to redefine what it means to be a sojourner. What it means to be an exile. Think about those two words. To be a sojourner is to be a stranger. It's to be an alien who doesn't feel at home in this world. Like, do you really want to be comfortable with this world? Do you really want America to go back to be more comfortable for you? Really, because if you do, then you're saying that this is your kingdom. And that's not the way God would have us to desire or to believe not biblical at all. Think about, think about the word exile, right? Like to be an exile is to be an outcast. To be an exile is to be an outcast, somebody who doesn't fit in. Why? Because our king is not of this world, and neither is his kingdom. Now, are we to set up the kingdom of God here on this earth? Yes, the kingdom is defined this way. A people in a place at a certain time, under the ruling and headship of another. I'll say it one more time. A kingdom is defined this way. A people in a place at a certain time, under the ruling and headship of another. You can't serve two kings. 
You can't serve the kings of this world and serve the king that is not of this world. When you and I are seen in this place as believers, we are under the headship and the rule of a king, and his name is Jesus. And he's the only king I claim. It's the only king I'll ever claim. You won't see me with a Trump flag behind my bike, or a Biden flag, or any other political flag for that matter, because they're not my king. You get me? From the beginning of time, listen to me close, from the beginning of time, the human race has struggled with kings and kingdoms. Understand this. Those of you who have understanding, have the spirit inside of you, you'll get this. From the beginning of time, the human race has struggled with kings and kingdoms. Go back to the Garden of Eden. It's a simple story. The Garden of Eden was the very first kingdom with a king, God. And the family in that garden that God had placed there as part of the kingdom the family that he had placed there, they rejected their king. They rejected him for a new king who offered up a tasty treat. It, it looked better. It smelled better. It tasted better. It was desirable. They chose that king instead. From that point forward, the battle between two kings and two kingdoms has been waged with humans in the middle vacillating back and forth between the two. And the reality is that there has been a war being waged against the souls of mankind since the beginning. And the problem is, is we have a tendency to make the war that we're part of about something other than it really is. And I think that's what Peter's getting after here. I really, really do. See, Peter wants to remind us that as we live in this fallen kingdom as aliens, as outcasts, he wants to remind us that we are deeply loved by the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Like that, that reminder that we're deeply loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, does that move you emotionally? Does that move you as emotionally as you get over the jacked up political atmosphere we live in? If it doesn't, why? I would just, I would, I would become a really good lawyer and, and try to dig deep down inside on your own and ask the Lord, like, why? Why does my rejection of you not get me jacked up? And, and, and also on the flip side, why, why does your love for me as the king of kings, why does that not, that not jack me up as emotionally? Why don't I stay awake late at night thinking about that? Why? My answer, just for me, because I don't want to try to like tell you what the Holy Spirit should tell you, but I'll tell you for me, it's because I live in this place just like every other, what I believe every other human struggles with. It's a thing called sin. And sin could be defined as trading the king and the kingdom for another king and kingdom that looks better. I really believe that's what happens deep down inside of me. Maybe it doesn't happen for you and you got this figured out. And if so, I'd love to talk to you afterwards because you can give me some pointers. Am I being sarcastic? Yeah. Because I don't know any of us that really has this figured out. I'm not on the stage because I got this figured out. I'm just on this stage because I really believe this is what's happening in this text. And God's called me to preach. <clears throat> so I think Peter wants to remind us that as we live in this fallen kingdom as aliens and outcasts, we're, we're deeply loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You see, in the midst of this war that's being waged against our souls, what we need to remember is that this earthly kingdom, America, is not our home. It's not. 
It's not our home. It's a place we live. But it's not our home. All of the earthly kings that have lived, ever will live on this earth, they are not our kings. This is what got the church in trouble. This is the reason they were the outcasts, is because they lived in such a way that said, I don't need your earthly system. And you know what all the religious crazies did back then? They made them into outcasts. That's what they did. That's the position that Peter's people are living in because they chose a kingdom that is not of this world. It's only one kingdom that's going to last. Only one. There's only one king who is going to reign for eternity and his name is Jesus. And he sits at the right hand of the Father God Almighty as the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. And in the midst of the war that's being waged against our souls, what we need to remember is that King Jesus won the only war that's ever going to matter. And he did it at the cross and the empty tomb. He didn't do it across the political aisle. And you might say, hey, Joe, why are you being so political heavy this morning? Look at the next text. Okay? I'm preaching context. Because that's what we're supposed to do. The next text is really simple. I'm going to get there next week. And if you don't want to skip, that's fine. You can't. Um, but, but the next one is really simple. Verses 13 all the way down through 25-ish. Like, it's all about being submissive to your unholy government. Okay? So, so that's why. It's called context. The fun thing is that I get to preach that context every time I get on this stage. Otherwise, I can just be unfaithful to the original author's intent and preach whatever I want which a lot of guys do, and I'm tempted to do, right? It's probably not a message I want to preach. I want to in some regard, in other regards I don't. In the midst of the war that's being waged against our souls, we need to remember that King Jesus won the only war that's ever going to matter at the cross and the empty tomb. So, so ask this question, how does this apply to us in America? I got it footnoted in, in the notes in my blog just so that you can go look at it. And you can know these words are not my own. These words I'm about to share with you are the words of a very faithful commentator. Um, I believe he's more Presbyterian than he is Baptistic, so that might drive some people crazy. But uh, there's some of you I can see smiles. There's some of you like, yeah, that's my family. Um, it's good to have like people from different backgrounds in this room. His comment was this. Here's what he said. Um, um, he, he basically, uh, he explains um, the application of this passage right here that we're looking at, and he explains it to American Christians in, in our struggle, our own struggle in this war against our souls, our struggle to lay our desires for acceptance and comfort and control at the feet of the king. Here's what he says. He says, hey, here's what happens. After a really disappointing election result, wh what do American Christians do? American Christians utter these empty threats all over the place. I've heard it, right? I've said it even myself. Utter all these empty threats about moving to Canada or Tahiti. That's the reputation we have in America. Shame on us. Right? But that's, that's a healthy, appropriate amount of shame to say shame on us for that. We ought not to be that way. Because when we say that, what we're saying is, I live for this kingdom and not that kingdom. That's what we're saying. Americans utter empty threats about moving to Canada or Tahiti. And he goes, he goes but no. <laughs> I love his, his rhetorical sarcasm. He goes, no, we're, we're, we're not moving to Canada. Here's the reason why. Canada is no better than the United States. Right? Um, we're certainly not going to Fiji or, or Tahiti. Why? 
not going to any of those islands in the French Polynesia, he says. Why? Because they're too far away. The climate's too hot. We find something to complain about. Like, that's another indictment that I think is really interesting for us in the American church. We're so spoiled, we find ways to complain about anything. You know? Like, sorry to be so heavy this morning, but when he talks about the war that's being waged against our souls, like, we got to wake up at some point and do an inner reflection, don't we? Isn't there something about personal holiness in the scriptures? I think there, I think there is. I think that's what he's doing. He's, he's, I think he's trying to turn his listeners' eyes off of all that out there back to in here and go, hey, what, what's actually happening deep inside of you that you've been unwilling to look at and check out and deal with? Right? He says the islands are too far away. The climate's too hot. More importantly, even if the pollutions there are any different, um, they're no lighter than they are here. It's still a broken, fallen world, so if you think Canada's going to be better, it's just, it, it cracks me up. And the reality of this text, he says, is that Peter advocates neither flight or fight. He doesn't advocate for either. And that's, uh, that's a lot of times our tendencies. And I already told you, my, my tendency is not flight. My tendency is fight. Okay. So this applies to me quite a bit. I'm not the guy who wants to move to Canada. I'm the guy that wants to take up arms. That's, that's who I am. If you don't know that about me already, you don't know that I'm not standing here preaching to myself, then you don't know me, okay? If you're feeling like I'm preaching to you, then you're going to have to deal with whether that's the Holy Spirit or not. That's what you're going to have to figure out. That's between you and him. Have you experienced this war against your soul, though, when you think about all these things I'm bringing up? Have you experienced this war against your soul? Have you experienced this kind of pain, this kind of fear, this kind of helplessness that Peter's addressing here? Like, how often have you caught yourself lamenting over the broken kings and the broken kingdoms of this world? How often does your sense of not fitting in need to be transformed from either a fight or a flight mentality into a hope-filled resiliency? Be encouraged. The message from Peter in this text is that in the midst of this war against our souls, you and I can find hope in this truth. We are a family of beloved, alienated outcasts, and that's beautiful. And not only is it a beautiful thing that we get to be a part of, it's a beautiful thing that we get the actual privilege of bringing attention to the God who has saved us as we live our lives in honorable ways and as we pick fights that actually matter. So that the watching world has a reason to glorify God. That's the message of what Peter's saying. It's just my, it's my rewording of what he says. Look at this second point. Look at this second idea here, that we need to choose our battles carefully, right? As I said earlier enough, I'm going to reference it a few times on my way through, that I'm a fighter, right? And when I was younger, man, I picked some of the stupidest fights for some of the stupidest reasons. If you would have known me then, you'd be like, I don't even know why this guy's on the stage. I'm serious. I did some really stupid things. My kids can tell you stories because they've heard the stories. They know. Ask my son about the time that I barked like a dog. If he can't remember, ask my wife. She'll tell you. It's horrifying. I have no problems throwing myself under the bus and how stupid I was in the fights that I picked. Now, on the surface, if you were to look at the fights that I was picking, they would have appeared to be worthwhile sometimes, except for that one. If you actually ask my wife or my son about it, that's not a worthwhile fight. I should never pick that fight. Um, but there were some fights that I picked that would have seemed worthwhile on the surface. Okay, If you disrespected me, I would pick a fight with you, and it would be under this banner of standing for the value of mutual respect. Anybody agree? We value mutual respect? Yes. Oh, okay, good. 
The rest of you are like, I don't know if this is a bait and switch, so I don't think I should raise my hand. No. Yeah, it's always a bait and switch with me because I'm a fighter. Hello. It's, it's okay, though. Like, like, to value mutual respect is a good thing. We should value it. The Bible values that. God values that. Good. How we get after it, that's, that's another story, right? Um, if you betrayed me, okay? If you betrayed me, betrayal is a pretty deep thing for me. If you betray me, I would have picked a fight under the banner of standing for the value of what? Faithfulness. That's a good value. Agreed? Yeah, we can all agree with that, right? Yes, Joe's baiting and switching all of us. Yes, those values are great. Um, and I, I, would pick, well, I would pick fights based on those values. Um, but here's the crazy thing. I would pick those fights about those things even though there were really obvious glaring areas in my own life that I was actually blind to, where I was not living out those values of respect and faithfulness. What do you call that? Somebody tell me. Hypocrisy. That's another indictment against the American church today, isn't it? Is our hypocrisy. Why do you think that is? Well, because our enemies, hey, haven't we, don't, don't we have the humility to step into that a little bit and go, you know, I actually do have a rat in that race that I probably need to repent from, right? When it comes to my own hypocrisy. I think this is why Peter instructs his listeners to do what? Verse 11, look at it. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, Peter, I think, knows, I mean, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit definitely knows, and this seems to be true, that the easiest thing to do when, when, our, when we are under attack, when our soul is under attack, when we, when we feel alone, when, when, when you feel abandoned, when you feel hated, when you feel helpless, right? When that stuff is what's getting churned up in your soul, the easiest thing to do is to lose sight of the battle that matters the most, that battle is the battle for personal holiness. Now, I don't care if you followed Jesus for 80 years or if you followed Jesus for 80 minutes. That battle for holiness, this side of heaven, should never be walked away from. Right? I think this is what it means to choose your battles carefully when your soul is under attack. Like, listen to me. You, you can fight all the religious battles you want to. Okay? You can fight all the social battles you want to. You can fight all the political battles you want to. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. You can fight all those battles, but without the battle for personal holiness, those battles are going to render very little fruit. Uh, the, reformers, the reformers had a certain way of saying this. They would say the way that we try to transform culture is not by making war with the culture. It's actually by living faithfully in a culture. It's living a faithful, transformed life that changes a culture. It's not you and I, like, jumping from our little cultural bubble into somebody else's cultural bubble and being like, you can't live that way. That's, that's, that was not the way Jesus did it anyways. So I think this is what it means to choose your battles carefully when your soul is under attack. When Peter reminds his listeners that the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul, what's he saying? Okay? So, so now you move away from kind of the word-by-word -word study of this text. And now you move into a phrase-by-phrase -phrase when you're interpreting Scripture. Okay? Um, you look at these phrases, the passions of the flesh, and you look at this phrase, wage war against your soul. Um, what he's doing here is he's echoing a smorgasbord of biblical teaching regarding the battles that we choose to fight when we're under attack. 
Now, I, we don't have time today um, simply because we, we don't practice here in the church what Ezra or Nehemiah practice, which is the people stand all day long with their Bibles open and they go, let's hear it. Eight hours at a time, take a break to go take a leak, come back. Um, we don't do that here. So I'm going to keep it really short. I'll summarize. And what I would hope that you would do is you would go home and feed yourself on this. Grab your Bible and feed yourself, right? What fights do you pick when you're alone? When you feel alone, when you feel abandoned, when you feel cast aside or helpless. Here's the, some of the smorgasbord of teaching when it comes to this war and our, and our engagement, choosing the battle carefully. Think about James, okay? The series that we just took down that I'll re-preach someday. I know, big thumbs down. Um, not my favorite series. It's some of y'all's favorite series, but we took what's gone. Sorry. It might be in heaven. <laughs> the redeemed parts of it. <laughs> For y'all, all y'all that don't know, when I preached James, I was, I was angry. It was bad. I'll preach it again. But James, James, <laughs> Morgan kind of likes, likes, likes somebody to get in her face. Um, James, James, what, what's, the, what's the overall message of James, right? Overall theme of James, he, re, he encourages us to maintain an active faith that matches our behavior to our profession of faith. That's his overall theme, right? Make sure that you have an active faith that matches your behavior to your profession of faith. So ask yourself a question. Does my behavior match my profession of faith? Check, no, where do I need to work at? Do work there. Do some work there. If the answer is yes, then you fall into a category now over in 1 John where it says anyone who says he does not have sin does not belong to God. So you tell me which category you want to be in, okay? Right? That's James. Um, go over to Galatians. Think about Galatians. Uh, what does Galatians do? Galatians instructs us to use our freedom in Christ to wage war against the desires of the flesh deep within us. How do we do that? By walking by the power of the Spirit. That's the big, I just preached Galatians to you. Okay? You could do good work under that heading, under that theme. And then ask yourself the question, where am I not walking by the power of the Spirit? Where am I giving in to the temptations of the flesh? There's lists. There's even a junk drawer. And things like these is the phrase. It's the junk drawer of sins that you make up and you throw them in there and you pretend like they don't you know. Paul goes there in Galatians. So Galatians would be a good study too. How about Ephesians? Think through Ephesians for a minute, right? Ephesians directs us to do what? To remain firmly seated in our identity in Christ. Here's who you are. Here's whose you are. Now walk like it, right? Walk like an Egyptian. No, not that son. I don't know why that came to mind. Um, but it would, be, it would be like the illustration I think that Karen used with me this, with, this week with our gospel community group. Um, get whatever your last name, our last name is Marinos. Marinos don't act that way. Right? Marinos don't walk that way. Marinos don't live that way. Christians don't live this way. Christians are to live this way because of who we are and whose we are. That, that's, that's Ephesians. So we're supposed to walk in accordance with the gospel. And then we're supposed to stand against the attacks of the enemy. Uh, the funny thing about American Christians, once again, because of the climate that we live in and the culture that we live in, we oftentimes turn that into let's make culture war. No, that's not, that's not what the armor of God is about. Not about culture war. It's about personal war. The problem with you and I in Christianity is we hear these little soft gospel messages that never calls anyone to die to themselves because Jesus died for them. We don't hear those messages in the church anymore because they're too hard, they're too harsh. We don't like hard words. 
uh, think about Colossians. Colossians, in Colossians 3 especially, tells us to put on the new behavioral clothing of the Christian as we put off the old behavioral clothing of sinfulness. And that's kind of the center core of the book of Colossians. There's heresy going on. People are teaching different things. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians says, yo, no, this is what this is about. This lifestyle of following Jesus. Constantly taking off your dirty clothes in the day, being showered in the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, and being renewed and restored in that moment with brand new clothes. So that your behavior is slowly transformed. So this is just a small taste, okay? I'm just holding up to you a really small, tiny piece of the apple pie you could be eating in the scriptures as it pertains to the battle that you and I ought to be t uh, uh, um, choosing each and every day. But all the biblical context, right? All that biblical context that we just briefly reviewed, it just, listen to me, because I don't want anybody to walk out here and be like, that Joe told us we can't be involved in politics and we can't go fight cultural. Nope. Not even going to give you the place to go ahead and do that. Not going to give Satan the place to go ahead and give that thought in your head. Okay? What I'm arguing for is a balance and a right focus because I think that's what Peter's arguing for. All that biblical context that we've just briefly reviewed does not negate the fact that Christians must be about the business of transforming the culture. It's just that we continue to insert um, war instead of transform. Or our minds, we tend to think that transform means war. Okay? We must be about the business of transforming the culture. We can't escape the culture. Can't run from it. Can't go hide in Canada. Uh, you also can't wage war against the culture, okay? What we need to be about is the business of transforming the culture when our souls are under attack. And we do that by choosing our battles carefully as we maintain a faithful presence in it by doing what? abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. What this is about is about a battle for personal holiness instead of making war on the culture at the end of the day. Once again, the reformer's statement on this is that we would maintain a faithful, transformative presence, not a warlike presence in our culture. Got to remember that in the midst of this war against our souls, you can and I can find hope in this truth that we are a family, beloved, alienated, outcasts. And as such, we have a privilege, right? <coughs> What's the privilege? The privilege is bringing attention to the God who has saved us as we live our lives in honorable ways and pick fights that actually matter so that the watching world has a reason to glorify God. Look at point number three real quick with me too. In verse 12, I think we learned that we need to maintain an honorable lifestyle. Now, this is always fun when you read statements like this, right? What does he say? He, he instructs his, his, his listeners to do this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's like, man, thanks, Peter. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What, what, what's he saying here? I, he's simply saying you need to maintain a lifestyle that honors God in the midst of the war against our souls. But the initial question right away is, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to honor God? Well, what does it mean to have a conduct that honors God? Especially in a hodgepodge culture like America where we have 50,000 different little denominational groups that think that it means this and it means that and it means this and they even have proof texts ripped out of context to prove that what they believe is right. right? How do you know? 
how do you know what to do? Like the hard part of interpreting this part of this text is understanding what kind of conduct is actually honoring to God. And it's important for us to start to understand what kind of glasses we wear when we do so. Right? All of us have presuppositions. We presuppose ideas about the text based on what we've heard from other popular preachers, based on how we were raised in a certain tradition and a certain culture, based upon the doctrine of the church that we're now in. All those things affect how we hear a phrase like this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then here's the thing. If the other little church or big church across town disagrees with you or your friend, old friend, used to be your friend, no longer your Facebook friend because you canceled him, disagrees with you, right? Follow me? That's the hard part of interpreting this text. It's understanding what kind of conduct is actually honoring to God. Now, here's the thing. Christians and pagans alike love to make this immediate jump. You and I and those who are not believers, we love to make the immediate jump all the way over to moralistic instructions. Like from here, it's like now it's moralism. Let's just start teaching the do's and the don'ts, right? Because that's easy. And I would say this, it, 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 it typically devolves quickly into the kind of moralism that makes really grand, great arguments out of these petty gray areas like food consumption, smoking, drinking, swearing, rather than concrete arguments from God's word. Like I already mentioned, right? I, just, I gave us a list of a number of different books that, that, that we could look at. Um, you got sexual sin, you got gossip, you got greed, you got hatred, you got division, you got envy, you got strife, you got those kinds of sins. The way that you use your words to tear people down, um, that kind of un unwholesome talk, right? To tear people down that have been created in the image of God. Um, it's harder to go there. And here's the thing those kinds of sins, let me list them again. This is just a, a quick summary from the books that I just mentioned sexual sin. Anybody here struggle with that? Probably don't want to raise your hand, I'm sure. Uh, gossip? Anybody here like to gossip? Probably don't want to admit that either. We've got a few. Hey, thank you. That was good and honest. I like that. Greed? Anybody get greedy with your time? Or how about greedy with your money? You know, the, the percentage of people in a church that actually give to support the, the ministry of a church is, is super low. It's something like 20%, you know? 20% of the people give enough to support 80% of the work. It's usually the rule of thumb. So how about greed? Um, greed's a big one. Um, what were some of the other ones I, I listed? Uh, hatred. You hate anybody? We can find some, some places for that, right? Yeah. Division or envy or strife. These kinds of sins are all too alive in the, in the body of Christ today, are they not? Can I tell you why they're alive? It's because we haven't made those the focus of our warfare. That's why they're alive. And here's what some of us are thinking in this room right now. Oh, I haven't done that, but I think somebody else in this room has. You know what you just did? Inside of you, you just gave in to a lie from the devil that says it's somebody else's problem, not yours. Make sense? It seems to me that all the gray issues, uh, everyone has this opinion without a rock-solid biblical uh, backup for it. Um, Peter, though, Come back to this phrase, right? Come back to this phrase. Keep your conduct honorable. Peter has to have something in mind, doesn't he? 
Don't you think he's probably got something in mind when he's saying this? I mean, he's not just tossing words out there for no reason whatsoever, right? He's got to have a specific thing in his mind when he tells his audience to maintain an honorable lifestyle. Could it be? Possibly. Could it be? Sarcasm? Yes. Look at verses 13 through 17. Could it possibly be that Peter believes that Christians can maintain an honorable lifestyle through their submission to evil human governments? Could it be possible? Yeah. You know why I'm being sarcastic is because that's part of rhetoric, right? Yes, it's exactly what I think he's saying because it's in context. Maybe Peter actually has it in mind that his listeners would even live obediently to unjust and cruel employers. How about that? Read that, verses 18 to 20. Could it be also that Peter actually believes that this is the way that we would actually emulate Jesus at the cross? Well, that's possible because verses 21 to 25 kind of says that exactly in context, right? Um, so I think, here's what I think. If Peter were standing here right, to, right here today in the flesh, right? And you know, some of us just walked up to Peter and were like, hey, you know, Peter, that, that phrase that you used here about keeping our conduct honorable? Like, wh- what did you mean? What did you mean by that? I think here's what his answer would be. I think he'd scratch his temple. I think he'd say, did, did you read the rest of my letter? Did, did you read the next couple of paragraphs? Did, did you read them through the lens of who was the actual recipient of this letter to begin with? Did you take yourself out of your American skin and think about it? Did you build the bridge of principles back across? I think that'd be his answer. You know what I think? You know what I mean? I think our natural question next is why? Well, why? Why would you instruct us to live this way, Peter? Like, why should we submit to an evil government? Why should we obey cruel employers? Why should we emulate Christ's activity at the cross? Well, that seems like an easy kind of like drop, kick, meatball, pitch, right? Why? I think his answer would be this. In the midst of this war against your soul, here's what you can find hope in. I'm going to say it again, right? You can find hope in this truth. You and I are part of a family of beloved, alienated outcasts, and we get a privilege. And the privilege here is bringing attention to the God who has saved us as we live our lives in honorable ways to pick fights that actually matter so the watching world has a reason to glorify God. Makes sense, right? Makes sense since the chief purpose of man or woman is to live lives that glorify God. Finally, last point, and I've got to get us out of here. need to give our enemies a reason to glorify God. Need to give our enemies a reason to glorify God. Seems crazy to me that Peter would actually be concerned about what our enemies are actually going to say about us, right? Nevertheless, he goes there. He instructs his listeners to choose their battles carefully and to maintain honorable lifestyles. Why? He answers the question so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may actually see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, in summary, Peter is just simply saying that we need to live our lives in such a way that it gives our enemies a reason to glorify God in the midst of the war against our souls, right? Capiche? Good. Got it. Yeah, what does this all mean? Like, it kind of comes across as a very shocking statement to me, right? At first, I can't think of, of very many instances at all, and I'm sure you can if you think about it too, can't think of very many instances at all when living rightly has actually caused my enemies, enemies of the cross, of Christ, to actually glorify God. And let me just tell you, some of the worst enemies of the cross of Christ are those who call themselves Christians. Anybody here been hurt by them? Craziness, right? People with religious language who have weaponized their Bibles. I've not really experienced those situations where somehow my right living and and good teaching caused those people to glorify God. Seems more normal to experience extreme ridicule. More normal to experience slander when I do what is right. 
And we do live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. So what does Peter have in mind here? Here's what I think he has in mind. Here's the piece of this that I think is important. Because we read that text about, about our enemies glorifying God, we have this kind of instantaneous gratification thing going on, right? See, Peter doesn't have the quick fix in mind that we are so addicted to. When our souls are under attack, what happens? We long for, for relief, don't we? Especially quick relief. God, please get this election season over. God, please get this year 2020 over. God, please let things go back to normal. God, please, we want, we want relief. Not wrong, but we are, we, we, we are full of instant gratification. Turn on your phone, email us slow. Gosh, what is going on with my phone, right? We, we order Amazon Prime because it gets here in two days rather than, I mean, what did it used to take? A week? <laughs> you know? I mean, you open up Facebook and bam, you got 50 immediate notifications. I mean, I don't have to go on very long about this, right, in, in terms of immediate gratification. We, we, we desire that. We long for that. But what Peter doesn't do, he doesn't, he doesn't offer quick relief. Peter acknowledges that enemies of Christ are going to speak against Christians. He acknowledges that they're going to try to make us out to be uh, evildoers. But here's his closing phrase. Pay attention to it. It's important, and it's easy to overlook. He says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of what? Visitation. Do you know when the day of visitation is? It's a long freaking ways away. Okay? It's a long ways away. I mean, it could be tomorrow. But I think it's going to be a long ways away. I mean, especially if you put yourself in the shoes of uh, Peter's listeners then, his original audience. They're wishing, Jesus, please come back today. That's one phrase I do use quite often when, when crap hits the fan. God, please, please send Jesus back. I'm not the guy who's like, I want to move to Canada. I'm like, please send Jesus back. Okay. That, that, I do land there because that, that feels pretty theological. That feels pretty biblical. I don't think there's anything wrong with desiring for Jesus to come back and set this stuff straight. I don't think there's anything wrong with longing for a place called heaven because I'm not longing, I'm not really not longing for the kingdom of this earth to do anything different than it was already designed to do at this point. And that's to crash and burn, right? Like, if this world isn't going to crash and burn, then why do we even preach Christ? You don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus if this world is your home. If you can build a kingdom over here in America or anywhere else for that matter. You know, why would you need Jesus? To make this, this world better? That's not the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is that Jesus is coming back and there will be a new creation and a new earth because it's crashed and burned. And you and I are part of that brand new creation. That's hope. That, to me, is hope. That's biblical hope. And it brings clarity to the pain, I think. It brings clarity to the confusion. It brings resolve. You see, while enemies of Christ may slander you for doing good right now, there's going to be a day when they're going to be held accountable for their abuse that they have leveled against you and I. And on that day, the day that Christ returns in glory, they're going to give God the glory because of your faithfulness to him. Basically, like he's going to take the words out of their mouth and they're going to have no choice but to say, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're glorifying you because your people lived rightly. That's the picture. I think Peter is paying here. He's saying, in the midst of this war against our souls, we can find hope in the truth that we're a family of beloved and needed outcasts. We get the privilege of bringing attention to the God who has saved us. We live our lives in honorable ways. 
specific fights that actually matter. So for watching World, that's reason to glorify God. And I have a whole conclusion written, but I've been after this for 55 minutes with you guys, and I'm not even going to give it to you. If you, if you want to read the conclusion, I just talk a little bit more about um, my years of that, that fighting instinct. Um, and I, I just do some work there in, in between the acceptable sins and non-acceptable sins. And so if you want to read that, you can, go, you can go to the blog, I think, or I think it's linked on the website. Um, you can go there, you can read the conclusion area. I just, I just think to, to shut this down, <laughs> because there's another page and a half of, of notes that you don't need me to stand here and ramble through. Um, I, I just want to leave you in a place where you can come to the cross, right? And, and recognize whatever sin God wants to uh, um, convict you of this morning, and whatever hope he needs to give you in that message of the cross and, and the empty tomb and his promised return. Like, hey, here's the thing. Uh, we're all living the same life together in the same world together. We're in the same church building this morning. And we live in the same culture and the same atmosphere. We're all guilty of probably some of the same sins, right? But at the end of the day, day, Jesus is the one that sets all this straight. Jesus is the one that comes and gives you true hope. And Jesus is the one that we can trust. At the end of the day, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his kingdom will reign forever. And right now, this morning, you're a part of that in a certain way. Even as you walk out of here, you're, you're just part of the kingdom that scatters. And we regather a few times a week in different ways. So, uh, and this is made possible by Jesus' work at the cross. His broken body, his shed blood, his empty tomb. Jesus didn't condescend from heaven to a sin-filled place called the earth to do culture war. Came here to save people. And that's the work that we're to be about. So I, I, pray, I pray there are pieces of this message that would convict you and it would cause transformation in you and cause you to find that place at the foot of that bloody cross I remember and it's by his shed blood and his broken body that you have the opportunity to come to your father in heaven who does love you deeply and that's the way that you and I are then enabled then to live this thing out right um, we're enabled by the power of his spirit that, which he gives us in this interim before he returns so I pray as we close you should spend some time there. Let the Holy Spirit do some work on you. If you need to confess or repent from sin before taking the elements of communion, which we're going to pass around, just stay in your place while we'll some servers bring them. Um, man, do that with somebody next to you. That's what I would say. Do that with somebody you trust. Confess, repent some sin, pray for each other, and then take the elements, the, the bread which symbolizes the broken body, the juice which symbolizes the, the shed blood. And to, don't take those elements if you're not a believer in Christ because then you're just kind of pretending, right? No one wants you to pretend. Um, allow these moments to be another moment of confession, repentance, and prayer for you. And let God encourage you and strengthen you in the moment. Amen? Jesus, thank you. Pray that you be with us as we close. Trust that you will. Pray that you do a transforming work. Help us to uh, commune with you at the foot of the cross, doorway of the empty tomb, in light of the hope of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.